Welcome back to the Service Design Podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with Tom Zaki, CEO at TerraCycle, a social enterprise on a mission to eliminate the idea of waste. In this conversation, he talks about Loop, a new company that's working on a global circular shopping platform and redefining how we see packaging. here on our final interview at Service Design Conference with also the speaker, which is going to wrap up the conference. Could you introduce yourself, Tom? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, my name is Tom Zaki, and I'm the founder and CEO of TerraCycle. And what is TerraCycle? Well, TerraCycle is a, is a garbage company, if uh, you put it into a sector, but uh, we're a very unique one. You know, We've been around for almost 20 years. We operate in 21 countries, and we focus on a central mission, which is to eliminate the idea of waste. To do that, we have uh, three major divisions. Uh, the first one, which operates under the TerraCycle brand, is known globally for collecting and recycling those things that you would never think were recyclable before. Everything from diaper recycling in Amsterdam to chewing gum recycling in Mexico to cigarette recycling in Canada and hundreds and hundreds of other waste streams. So we do a lot of uh, you know, that's our first thing. And if you Google TerraCycle, you'll see a lot of those examples. Our second division to help accomplish this mission is all about how do we create supply chains for unique materials to go back into consumer products. Products, everything from festival waste into deodorants to ocean plastic into shampoo bottles and many others. And then our newest division, which actually operates under the Loop brand, is all about how do we solve waste at the root cause by shifting away from single-use disposable products and packages to multi-use durable products and packaging. That seems very uh, relevant. Uh, yeah. What do you transform the waste into? Is it like... We'll raw a, material again uh, or we'll products? Pick, um, let's have some fun. Pick any type of garbage. I'll tell you how we do it. Anything you can I like about. the diaper. Diapers? <laughs> okay, so diapers are... So the thing to think about with any garbage, pick another one that's different. We'll do two to compare and contrast. Something completely opposite of diapers. Any object is fine. It's like a magic trick, you know? Like a coffee cup. Coffee cup? Like a paper coffee cup? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you have a paper coffee cup and a diaper. The first thing to note in garbage is that it's like an animal. In, a, in you know the ecosystem, every animal behaves completely differently. So for garbage, these are completely two different animals. And there's always three questions you have to ask to solve and make them go in a circle, especially when you think about recycling. So there's less to do with reuse, more to think about in recycling. So the first question is, how is it collected? Then how is it processed? And then what makes that engine turn on to make it economically viable? So let's do that and compare and contrast cups and diapers. So the first question is, how is it collected? So in a cup, you would think about probably the where, and the where on a cup would be a coffee shop, most likely, maybe an office environment. There's very few places you have high frequency of coffee cup waste. For example, do you ever have a coffee cup, a used coffee cup at home? It's actually incredibly rare. It's usually on the go. And I'd say coffee shops, businesses, train stations, those are some examples. Diapers would be the where would be either at a store Partly because when you're going to go get new diapers, that's a very logical place to drop off diapers because, you know, you, you get the new ones there. Plus also nurseries where you drop off your child. And they also all are high-frequency diaper uh, consumers themselves, nurseries. So that's the where. Where is critically important because you don't want to put a diaper bin everywhere or a coffee cup bin everywhere. You want to put it where it's going to see collection and be relevant. Then the next thing in collection is in what way do you collect it? So coffee cups, the key issue you have to worry about is residual liquid. So you need to construct a device where you can put in the coffee cup 
ideally upside down. It can stack as much as possible and then have a reservoir for the liquid. You know, show in your mind, you can imagine something like this. On diapers, they smell like shit, literally. <laughs> so you got to worry about that and you have to worry about the hygiene as well. And so there we construct diaper bins that are outdoor that have a lot of most of the work in them is about smell protection. And especially smell is accentuated with heat. So think summertime, you know, it's, it's a shit show, literally. And so you have to, you know, consider that because if you start stinking up near a retailer, everyone gets pretty upset. <laughs> Then you layer on health and safety. That's more, you know, uh, protocol for how these are serviced. And then also what is the right logistical pattern to service them? Those are more operational pieces. And now those waste streams are collected and they end up in a central location. In that central location, we basically store the materials until we hit enough volume. And then comes the next key question is how do we process them? So coffee cups. Coffee cups are coated paper, uh, coated with a, a typically a poly of some kind, some sort of plastic to hold in the liquid, which is what actually renders them not recyclable in normal settings. And uh, there's a special process called hydropulping, where you can pulp them in water, separating the plastic from the paper, and then voila, you can get them uh, recycled that way. We also look at are they reusable? Are they upcyclable? Neither solution would work in a coffee cup, mostly recycling. On diapers, uh, we look at are they reusable? No. Are they upcyclable? No. Can they be recycled? Absolutely. And that's a pretty complex process where we sterilize the diaper. We then separate it into its base components, which is a cellulosic material, the fluffy stuff, from a crystal called SAP, the superabsorbent polymer, is what absorbs urine. Or in a femcare product, what absorbs blood, which is the same type of product uh, in the end. It's not much difference between a diaper and a pad. And then you have plastic, which is the casing. Uh, that's usually like a polypropylene or something. So you can shred it, separate those things, sterilize it, and then not make it into a new diaper again, just like a coffee cup. We'll come back to a coffee cup and make it into something new. So that's the process. Now, the big white elephant in the room is everything I described to you costs more money than the results are mm -hmm. worth. And that's actually what makes things recyclable or not recyclable is not the technical capacity to recycle them, but much more, will it make money? Mm -hmm. You know, and recycling is like urban mining, right? So let me give you a, a, an example just to really paint the picture. If I had a kilo of gold and I left it here in the studio uh, and said, I don't want it, would you guys take it? Yes. Would you even fight over it a little bit? Yes. <laughs> We'd compromise and share. No? We'll share, yeah. <laughs> okay, but you'd uh -huh. have high levels of desire for it, right? Yes. Enough that you would have a polite European conversation on who gets to keep it and you'd try to cut it in half. <laughs> right. What if it was a kilo of iron? How would you react? I think we, I'd just leave it there. <laughs> you would leave it? Would yeah. you take it? No, I wouldn't. Okay. And so what, what if someone had to take it? Because let's say you have to leave and you can't just leave the iron. How would you react to it then? I would bring it to someone who can do something with okay, it. So you try to find a home for value and maybe you could think of someone in your you know, network who maybe works with metal. It wouldn't be a neutral. It'd be sort of annoying, but maybe okay for who you gave it to. And what if I left you as a gift, great gift, a kilo of uh, you know, shit what, and you had to leave. It had to leave. What would uh, you do then? I would call you and uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm gone. I'm, I don't want it. I don't want it. Yeah, but shit, you can. Uh, you mean like literally? My shit. I just pooped on the table <laughs> for you. But then I can put uh, on my plants. And... You would put my shit on your plants? Yeah. Really? That's bold. No, no. But <laughs> the answer I'll tell you what I'm looking for is that you'd probably want to pay someone to get rid of it, right? You would have to. You would want it so little that you would end up paying for someone to clean it up and get rid of it. And this is recycling. The gold is your aluminum can. A carton is like the iron. And say like uh, recycling a tube would be like the poop, right? And so the third question in diapers and cups becomes critically important is who pays the bill uh, uh, and who will want to? And the big lesson in sustainability exercises is 
If you go to the company, say Pampers and Starbucks as the you know, two potential logic choices for diapers and cups, and you tell them, look, at, we can figure this out, we could do it, and now will you pay the bill? You'll get the meeting uh, because they agree that these are waste issues. Cups and diapers are massive waste issues. Um, but they won't be too excited to fund it because all they're going to see is if it works a growing expense. So it's so important to think about how do you make them want to uh, uh, do it and not just want to do it, but scale it. Right? There's a big difference between pilots and major scale. And the question that you need to ask in each of these models is, how can you get other benefits than just the sustainability benefit of having a cup be recycled? So take the coffee cup. Um, maybe my marketing that, uh, you know, that particular brand would just use Starbucks, you know, is now recycling its cups. People move from, say, we're Europe, so Costa to Starbucks, right? So you get market share shift. Maybe people are less guilty about buying coffee, so they buy more volume. You know, all these different things that move things they understand, like selling more cups. All, let's go over to diapers. I don't know if you have children. I have two little kids. So I've gone through, you have... I have two uh, out of the diapers by now. But you've experienced them. Definitely. Okay. So let me pitch you exactly how it's happening in Amsterdam. You tell me, assume you were a loyal Huggies consumer, competitor brand. Okay. You find out in the newspaper that now diapers are recyclable uh, through Pampers uh, and that there's diaper bins all over Amsterdam. This is all true. You can do this today. And uh, to, to do it, you can recycle your Huggies. They'll even recycle any brand. You download a Pampers app. To find out where there's a recycling bin, you register and then you say, I want to recycle it, you know, near wherever, you know, near Central Station. And it says it sends you a barcode to open the bin. Uh, then you put your Huggies diapers into the Pampers bin. It weighs it and it sends you coupons for Pampers. Yeah. Now you are going to go shop for diapers. What brand will you choose? Yeah, I think that's an easy one. Uh, right. And the market share shift pays and makes it a profit center. And the moment you can render it into an easy to understand profit center Voila, it scales. Mm -hmm. And every waste stream can go through this process. Yeah. And are you, are you managing the whole process at TheraCycle? So are you uh, finding a business model for certain brands? Are you uh, building the, the bins where uh, they have to uh, collect the waste? Are you designing the whole system? Or what are you responsible for? Yes. So the short answer to it is we usually do end-to-end -end systems. So take um, diapers. That would be coming up with what I just described to you. Right? That's not always intuitive. Uh, identifying the brand, pitching it in, uh, in this case, developing the app, developing the bin, building the bin, building the app, doing the customer service, uh, uh, serving the bin you know, with trucks that have the right licenses to move the diapers, storing them, processing them, finding the end markets for the materials, then even doing the promotion on top of it and making sure that, you know, uh, that they're getting displays and so on. But in some cases... It can, there, it's like a menu. So usually it's the, you know, we do it all. But if uh, in the, the example of diapers, just to be very clear, the invention to how to recycle the diapers was a massive, amazing collaboration between P&G and Fater, who's an Italian company who makes diapers. Um, and they invented the process to recycle diapers. And in fact, they built these incredible recycling facilities to do it. So they're that part of the process I don't do, but we do everything else. And it, that, that's very rare. Usually we do the whole thing top to bottom, but if there's an innovation here or an innovation there, like a puzzle piece, it could be mm -hmm. plugged and played easily. Now, yeah. where, where does the question start? Is it you who identifies uh, a piece of trash that there's too much of, or is it a company like Pampers who wants a solution for marketing? Or where's the question? It's both. It's both. And I would say, just to clarify, it's not a solution for marketing. It's a solution that mm -hmm. can become an exciting solution to scale because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's many aspects that it solves for, right? Like that's important to note, but, um, but net net, it could be inbound, you know, where the company says, Hey, you know, we have guitar strings, we have toothbrushes. 
Um, can you help us? Uh, or it could be that we identify and do outreach. It's, it's a blend of both. And, you know, in any company at the beginning, it was all outreach. Now it's like half and half. And as we get bigger and better, I bet you inbound will become bigger than, you know, outbound outreach. Um, you know, the fun part about waste, I'll tell you this, is that it's, to me, one of the most undiscovered areas in the world. That's what got me so fascinated by it academically. Because every so today we live in a society where we measure our status in large part to our accumulated stuff. Right. The more cool stuff, the higher chance we get the pretty girl. That's, you know, more or less the ecosystem today. And here's the crazy part. Everything you own, with no exception, will one day be property of a garbage company. Isn't that crazy? Yet we measure our value in society based on the stuff we own, yet it'll all end up in the garbage industry with not a single exception. Even the Mona Lisa will be in the garbage one day. It just will take a long time to get there. So time is the only question. And 99% of everything you buy will be garbage within a year. Um, and then to add the cherry on this proverbial cake, you will have paid them to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Just a little bonus on top. Mm-hmm. So for how ridiculously, like look around this room, everything you see or any listener, anything, you know, he or she sees is going to be property of the garbage industry. Not just the obvious, like, you know, the cup or the, or the pen, but the carpet, the walls, the lights, the concrete, everything. And so for how amazingly big that is, it is ridiculous how uninnovative it is. Um, yes, there is multi-billion dollar garbage companies, you know, in Europe, Suez, Veolia here. Wait, actually, Suez owns a part of our European business, so we have a sense of how these work. So there is, you know, but relative to how innovative software is, cosmetics, you know, apparel, the level of innovation is absurdly low. And I think a big part of that is that as animals were built to be repulsed by waste, I mean, it's almost a joke if you end up, you know, finishing university and end up in the garbage and the business you would have perceived to have failed somehow, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's something really interesting in there where you can twist the rules because people haven't tried yet. Mm-hmm. We are here at the service design uh, conference. Do you have a background in design? Do you have service designers on the team? Or do you apply some of the uh, methods that most people here use in their daily uh, job? So... I have a high school degree. I have no qualifications in anything. Um, I would view myself as a good generalist. Um, but yes, we have a whole team of designers, uh, uh, all sorts of designers, you know, package designers, system designers. Design is very, very important. I think the biggest lesson I've learned in design thinking is I view that there's sort of two ways to innovate. You know, one way I would call, these are just terms we've made up, but step innovation, where you say, you know, a toothbrush is the right way to clean your teeth and let's make a better toothbrush you know, uh, better, faster, cheaper, you know, that sort of thing. That would be step innovation. What I really believe deeply in is actually a different type of innovation, which I would call step back innovation, where you take a step back and you say, well, what is the problem the toothbrush is trying to solve? Well, it's trying to solve oral hygiene. You got to take one more step back and say, why do we even have the problem of oral hygiene? Why does that even exist as a problem? And then when you understand why does the problem exist, How can we try to solve it? The answer you may come to may not even look like a toothbrush or toothpaste. It may be something wildly different. And actually, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity to do that um, these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of work for um, BBUT. That's a, a Belgian organization responsible for uh, recycling batteries. So mm-hmm. in that situation, mm-hmm. there's, of course, government requires organizations mm-hmm. to sell batteries that mm-hmm. they need to solve the whole problem. So that, that's a reason... For them to exist. Um, how do you feel about, about policy on, on recycling? Are you yeah. actively trying to change policy? Uh, and so, making things more? you know, we get invited in all the time. We we're just with the Minister of Environment in France last week. And we're, you know, we have 
always speaking to politicians where they call us to advise them on how to run EPR schemes. Those are extended product responsibility schemes like the Grunapunkt or other such systems. Um, so we're a lot, a lot of time brought in to advise. I'd say this to directly answer your question, though. Um, the best thing a politician can do is threaten a law. They don't even have to have the wherewithal to pass a law. But getting up and yelling and screaming that I'm going to ban this, ban that, like a straw or a bag, they're going to get bonus points anyway. The people will love them for it. So it's good to get reelected and so on. And companies will react. And companies, because companies' goals is not to be regulated. Companies hate regulation. They, when they sense regulation may be coming, they immediately get into the mode of let's get ahead of the regulation. I had a call today, the company's name is not important, but a Canadian company, big one, where the Canadian government is now talking about passing a, a ban to ban certain plastics. They haven't even announced what those plastics are in this company. We've been trying to talk to them for a decade to launch a program. They call us now and say like, shit, we got to get ahead of this. Let's get a recycling program going. Let's really innovate. And that's a great lesson in the use of the political instrument because getting a law passed is exceptionally difficult. Talking about one is exceptionally easy. And you don't even have to do all the work because the innovation, the free market will sense the risk of the pending legislation and will, you know, will rise to match what their perceived risk is. I see, I don't know if you see it the same way, but the biggest challenge in recycling is uh, people that have to uh, make it a habit to do something with the waste. To, to, For example, with the diaper um, example, you have to bring it still to a certain bin. And then yeah. uh, that means you have to maybe in your house have like 10 uh, different types of uh, bins. Are you also... Um, Improving that uh, experience for a user in their household uh, specifically? It's a good question. Um, and you're right. You know, uh, habit change is incredibly hard. Um, and the more you ask a consumer to change, the less likely consumers will adopt, especially the mass consumer, because that's you need to get volume right now in environmental movement. It's not about the fringe. It could have been about the fringe 20 years ago um, when it was just sort of cute. But now it's also meaningful. And so you have to go for the masses. So this is exactly why we, you know, we created Loop, because recycling is um, not a perfect solution to waste. And I think the perfect solution is never to have the problem of waste to begin with. And ironically, that's not a step into the future. It's a step into the past, because garbage was invented in the 1950s. It's only 70 years old as an idea. Back in the 1940s, we had, you know, everywhere, Belgium too. Well, Belgium still has this, but, you know, generally speaking, refillable bottles on everything. We uh, uh, had cotton diapers, not disposable ones. We fixed our clothing. We cobbled our shoes. We had a cultural love of durability, quality, and, uh, uh, and so on. And that shifted when we invented disposability. Now, it's easy to vilify disposability, but we have to look at the benefits, which is affordability and convenience, mm -hmm. right? And so Loop, which is this new platform, uh, and it's live in Europe, live in France. It's going to launch in uh, the UK, live in France with Carrefour, and then with Tesco in the UK, it's going to go live in February. And then here in Canada, Loblaw uh, is taking it live in May, and then some big US retailers, Kroger, Walgreens, it's live. So it's happening. And uh, the idea of Loop is how do we learn from the past and modernize? And the big shift that happened when disposable packaging came onto the scene is the packaging moved in the end from being the property of the manufacturer, like in Belgium in a returnable beer model, the bottle ends up back as property of Heineken or Carlsberg or Coke or Pepsi. But in, in a disposable version, when you buy, you know, a can of beer, can of Budweiser in the US, you own the can, which is weird because do you really want to own it? It's super strange. And by owning it, it becomes a cost to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer's goal is to reduce the cost, which actually makes it less recyclable, more complex, less value. It's more like the poop than the gold. Um, and it sets up this big problem where the packaging quality goes down and it becomes less recyclable. And the consumer loses and the environment loses. And it's all because of shift of ownership. 
So with Loop, what we're doing is we're effectively setting up a platform where manufacturers from Unilever, Pepsi, Mars, Coke, Pepsi, uh, sorry, uh, uh, you know, all these different major manufacturers can join in. And almost every major manufacturer has at this point. And they can create uh, versions of their products that are uh, not disposable and in the end property of the consumer, but durable and in the end their property which does some amazing things. First, it embeds the externality back to them. So they're going to be thinking about designing things that can go around versus designing things that can just leave. They can also greatly increase the investment of the package because now what is in the cost of the content is not the entire disposable package, but the depreciation of the durable package, which actually becomes similar. Um, And that allows them to innovate in amazing ways that was never possible before and have a profound solve from a sustainability standpoint. And so I think... The way to think about these questions is not, and, and, and that way, the behavior to the consumer in loop, because I didn't actually answer your question, is this idea of convenience, right? Is we want the consumer to have a disposable experience. You get all these loop products from deodorant to shampoo to beer and, and soda and, you know, whatever. And when you're done, you throw them in the garbage. The only difference is the bin you put them in is a reuse bin. So when you're done, you take the whole bag of garbage and you drop it off at any participating retailer. And instead of going to a landfill or an incinerator or even a recycling center, it goes to be sorted and cleaned. Mm -hmm. Because the act of throwing things out is not a bad thing. It's actually the most convenient way to get rid of something. Mm -hmm. The problem is not that. The problem is where the bin ends up. And so I think what we need to do from a design standpoint is design into what your average uninspired consumer will do when no one's looking. And then to change the system to behave differently to accomplish a better outcome. Because if you're going to ask a consumer to change their habit, the earth isn't going to survive that process. Mm-hmm. In service design, often people uh, use the example of Philips, who used to sell uh, light yeah, light bulbs, yeah. for example. And now they sell light. And now they sell light. Is that something... I, people have been talking about it um, mm-hmm. a lot, but I don't see it really happening. Well, it's happening with Philips, to be fair, in the B2B sector. Yeah. Right? So yes, many companies are moving to light as a service versus light as a product. And that's actually a really interesting example, the Philips one, because um, when the light bulb was first invented in the mid-1800s, well, you want to guess how long the, the, the light bulb lasted back then? Really long. long. <laughs> still, there's one that was turned on back then and it's still burning today, 120 years later. And now they're designed to break. Yes, course. they are the, the definition of planned obsolescence. Light bulb mm-hmm. companies got together and said, if we make the filament thinner and not as high quality, they'll break and people will buy more light bulbs, which was actually back then seen as a way to spur the economy. The first time planned obsolescence came up as a law was actually as a law. Uh, presented uh, during a really bad time in the British economy. And uh, the lawmaker, good intention lawmaker, uh, wanted you to basically not be able to own your appliance for more than X years so that you spurred the economy. It didn't come from a bad place. It came from a place to boost the economy. You know, but, but no one thought about the externality of all this waste mm-hmm. and all this negative you know, that, that, would, uh, that would come. And uh, so I think redefining the way to sell light is a great example to solve that concern, you know, that still today, incandescent light bulbs are still not as good as the ones invented 150 years mm-hmm. ago. Do you think we can make that happen in the B2C market as well? Yeah. Yeah. I think what we need to do, like the good news is companies are now open to listening. I mean, Loop is a huge ask and yet every company around the world is jumping it. And uh, so the timing is right to go in and to challenge baseline assumptions. The baseline assumption Loop challenge is a simple, why own a package you don't want to own? Mm-hmm. That's it. And then the key, I think, is 
then try to change as little around the, the uh, like twist one thing and keep everything else fiercely the same. Let a consumer throw it out. Let a manufacturer, you know, just everything behave normally. And you twist one twist. The problem sometimes is when people try to twist too many things. And then, you know, the system can't deal with that. It can deal with one profound twist, uh, but I don't think more. Because then it becomes exponentially difficult. Mm -hmm. if, if our listeners uh, find a, a waste problem in their own context where they feel we need to change this, how... How do they go about getting you involved? Sure. So the way you can find out about us is go to TerraCycle.com. Uh, and no matter where you are in the world, Belgium or elsewhere, you can then, you know, so we, we operate in Belgium, so you can uh, check out the local systems from there. And then if you're interested, that's for basically disposables being more circular, TerraCycle. And then Loop, uh, you can go to LoopStore.com to learn more about that. Uh, and that's more about the reusables. Uh, that, again, in Europe is live in France. We'll be launching in the UK and then coming to Germany at the end of this year. <laughs> Maybe a final question before you jump on the stage. What do you think uh, our waste world would look like in the 20 years? I fear that it's going to be much worse than it is today. Um, the macro trends point in that direction. You know, think the movie Wally, -E, and you know that's becoming a big reality. My hope is that we can come up with alternative systems that capture the imagination of the mass consumer, so that that fear doesn't become a reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's a great uh, thought to be left with. Uh, we will leave you to go to the stage. Thank you so much uh, for uh, speaking to us. And I'm very curious uh, for the talk. Thank you so much. And good luck changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org and for night moves visit nightmoves.be if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing to this podcast the intro and outro music is from if the stars grow dim tonight by hydrogen c featuring i will i swear until next time